Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Based in Hudson, New York, composer, sound artist, and musician Nathan McLaughlin makes hauntingly ethereal music using string instruments, field recordings, and reel-to-reel tape machines. In Nathan's hands, the tape machine becomes its own instrument. In addition to creating imaginative music, his work is deeply philosophical, focusing on the concept of going to the center. He performs as both a solo artist and as a collaborator in a variety of settings, including recent work with Cody Yantis and Joe Hoopert in the group Tilth, and with musician and multimedia artist Seth Chrisman. Nathan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, John. I always like to start these conversations by getting some background, and I'm particularly interested, if it is at all possible, to sort of pinpoint a moment that you knew that you would be an artist, or at the very least, a a time when you were starting to realize that you wanted to respond creatively to the world around you. You know, I, I didn't start making music really seriously until I was probably 20 or so. But I had met this person in the, in the dining hall in college. And at the time, I was a radio DJ in college. And, and this guy came up to me. And I guess we had a mutual friend. And he said, oh, I hear you like music. That's all he said. I hear you like music. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I like, I like music. <laughs> so we, we went back to my dorm. And we played records and listened to different things. And a couple weeks later, he took me back to Delaware where he had grown up to like a house show and I had been going to like punk shows and all those DIY type spaces but this was different you know this was improvised music experimental music um and and I thought wow that is amazing and I feel like I could contribute to that um and right away started exploring how to make that music um you know, going back to my parents' house in Maryland and digging out keyboards. My mom has is a is a keyboardist, <laughs> and and my dad's a big computer guy. Um, and just really trying to figure out how can I how can I get involved in that? How can I contribute to that? Um, yeah. So you didn't really have any kind of uh, formal musical training uh, at any point in your early life there. Uh, I mean, I think like most kids, I took music instrument lessons in in elementary school, Mm -hmm. Um, but that didn't really stick for me too much. Um, Surrounded by by the keyboard and the organ and piano, but again, I didn't take piano lessons. Um, So in college, shortly after that moment I talked about, I did enroll in in music theory classes, so I studied some of that in college. Mm. Yeah. And what was the connection to the guitar? Where where did you or string instruments? Because you you often use uh, banjo or guitar or other string instruments in your in your music. Where did that uh, connection come in for you? So yeah, through college, it was a lot of electronic music and synthesizers. And then I graduated and and had a roommate who was really into like roots music, I guess you could call it. <laughs> so he had all these different instruments around guitars and banjos and whatever and you know just hanging around I, I picked them up um, and I, I took them a much different direction than, than my buddy at that time was using them for hmm. um, so I was 23 probably 
and picked up the guitar. And then just really, that was my focus for a long time now, the guitar and the banjo. Well, I want to get right into some of your collaborations uh, and also this uh, this philosophical idea that that several of your albums have explored and uh, and that you seem to be quite interested in so uh, perhaps we can talk about this group tilth and yeah I really loved the LP con- called country music that you did mm-hmm. and it's sort of hard to describe I guess I would if I had to describe it I would say it's somewhere between free jazz and some kind of meditative drone music. I'm not really sure. It it sort of defies categorization, but uh, maybe you can talk a bit about how this group formed and and we can get into some of the music. Sure. Yeah, so uh, Cody Yantis, my my collaborator in Tilth, uh, had bought a record for me online, uh, you know, and paid through PayPal, and when that came through, I thought, oh, that name sounds really familiar. And uh, I looked him up, and it, he had just put out his first record called Kerning. Um, so we just started a, a dialogue because we, we liked each other's music. Um, and that went on for, for months, just talking about what sort of records we like. And we talked a lot about books, about different writers we liked uh, John Haynes, Richard Hugo. Um, Raymond Carver. And decided, uh, let's just try something. We were talking a lot about Bill Dixon's music at the time. Let's try something and see what it's like. And that was... Angular music ended up becoming the product of that collaboration. So that that record was interesting because we spent a lot of time talking about what was important to us that wasn't talking about, oh, you know, this band made this song and that was great or that song. We were both living in pretty remote areas. I was in rural Minnesota. He was in the southern Colorado area at the time and just really digging into to the, uh, the feeling of being in those places and what that meant. I think we exchanged a lot of Aldo Leopold quotes back then, <laughs> John Muir quotes, something like that. Um, so it was very you know nature-based. I think we both spent tons of time outdoors back then. So that's how that band came to be, and we made Angular music. So when yeah. you, when you made this uh, first LP, Angular music, I mean, if he if you were in Minnesota and he was in Colorado, was this largely like a long distance collaboration, or did you guys actually get together in the same space, or how did you collaborate? Yeah, it was completely online, just sending wow. files back and forth over our pretty rickety rural internet connections. <laughs> <laughs> So he worked at a library, so he would take his files to work, I think, and upload them from there uh, to Dropbox or whatever. And, uh, so that's how the, all that came together. Okay. Wow. After the record came out, then he, he flew to Minnesota, and we did a couple shows there in Minnesota. That was the first time we'd ever met in person, though. Wow. That's ama- isn't it amazing, this whole—I uh, mean, I'm just starting, sort of starting to tap into this. My—, my 
background in training is really as you know a classically trained percussionist you know and um but in the course of uh doing this podcast and and talking to a bunch of people you know i'm just i i follow the rabbit hole sometimes online and uh I can't remember. I think it was uh, the Alien Records, uh, maybe, is where I found your name for the first time. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had a couple of other composers from that project on there. But that, anyway, it was just one of these things where, you know, you kind of go down the rabbit hole online and you find, follow this link to that link to this link. And sure. uh, I've just found so, there's so much going on uh, that, you know, that's outside of the sort of main, I mean, if there is a mainstream anymore, I, I don't even know what that means, but you know, <laughs> like, like what you're talking about, you, you made a connection online, uh, ended up making this collaborative album. And then you, you know, then you have this really terrific collaboration going on that, that produces, you know, beautiful, beautiful music. Um, but it's very much, uh, sort of this community that you find yourself online. Um, and it's fascinating. It's a really interesting time for, for this kind of activity. It's it's really interesting. I mean, that's we've we've all found each other, and we've you know the the world of this experimental music that, that a lot of us are making has a, a mainstream element to it. Even I mean, I'm I consider myself pretty obscure, <laughs> and there is a mainstream element to it that sometimes my records have popped into or or not. Huh. But we all find each other. Uh, the way that we're supposed to, that, you know, Cody and I, out of all the experimental musicians that are running around the countryside, would find each other and share this this really strong love for the music of Bill Dixon and the writing of Richard Hugo. Yeah. And we make, we make those sorts of connections to each other. Um, that, yeah, I also find it really fascinating that a lot of us have our own little community we've built and it, it intersects with each other's communities. <laughs> yeah. You know, we all have like what Kurt Vonnegut used to call a caras. And we, you know, these circles of people. Um, and it's fascinating without the internet, um, we would not have easily found each other. Yeah, right, totally. So you mentioned Bill Dixon, and this is the concept I, I assume was influenced largely from him. This this concept of going to the center, this sort of philosophical um, mantra, I guess one one could say. What yeah. what this is an intriguing idea, and but I'm curious to know what that phrase "going to the center" means to you, and and how you feel that that uh, shows up in the work. Sure. Yeah, it's the, Bill Dixon's. Uh, there's a little clip on YouTube that that people could look up if you were to Google Bill Dixon going to the center. Uh, a clip from this DVD that he had released where he talks about his his take on going to the center. And so the phrase to me has has a dual nature. There is how the concept's been applied to experimental music, particularly how Bill thought it should be applied, you know, and I'll paraphrase him. I wouldn't quote him because um, I think he chose his words <laughs> very carefully. Uh, I'll paraphrase Bill and he said that it's, if you take away all of the stuff around an idea, he's, he called it the filigree and stripped it down, you know, the abstraction of something is that something. And, and if you can do that, then you've gone to the center of your idea. 
Hmm. That's an interesting application of this idea of going to the center. I mean, Bill definitely didn't develop that idea. I think in a lot of different spiritual circles, that's that's a common theme. Sure. Um, in the, the Quaker world, that's a common theme. And in the world of Rudolf Steiner, that's a theme. It was really inspiring to me to discover there's this person, Bill Dixon, that would want to apply that to experimental music. Um, <laughs> I just found that so um, fascinating. Yeah. So, so, you know, if we look at the first Tilth record, um, we had this, we, we, Cody and I at the time were both leading pretty tiring lives for different reasons. And we were, we had this idea that we would make mu our music late at night when uh, we were pretty sure the tank was on empty. <laughs> we called it meditations on fatigue. <laughs> because by then, what else could we think about? You, it's, when you're that tired at nine o'clock at night, you've been up since six or something. It's really hard to multitask. It's really hard to think about multiple things at once. Um, and when we had this pretty well-formed, abstract idea of what the tilt music would be, that we could get to the center of that, we could meditate on that and, and create something. Um, so I, I think that's how that originally showed up in, in the music. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to put into words other than that, because it is a little bit of an abstract idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's open to interpretation in terms of the listener uh, interpreting this idea of going to the center and trying to think, you know, um, sort of as a listener myself listening to this music, and I'm thinking about this phrase as I'm listening to the music and how I think it, you know, is showing up in the music for, for me as a listener. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it's, a, it's just a really intriguing concept. So you talked a little bit about angular music. Can you talk uh, a bit more about this, the new one called country music? Because for me, this one is, a, a, it, it's quite different than angular music. It almost sometimes has a sort of a free jazz kind of quality to it with, there's even some drumming and, and things in there. Can you talk a little bit about that one? So we, we became a trio uh, during that time before we started country music. We invited Joe Hooper to the group who's a really longtime friend of mine. Uh, he went to high school with my wife. <laughs> uh, so we've known each other for a long time, and we've made records together before. So he's the, the percussionist in that group and the violin player. That, that album was partly made while Cody and I were still in our various country places. And during that time, we both ended up moving back into towns. He moved into Denver, and I moved to Hudson, New York. Joe lives in Philadelphia. So it's a, it's a different record because Cody and I had a really unspoken but well-defined idea of what going to the center meant for, for Tilth. To invite a third person into that, um, you have to give them time to, to define that. You know, We can't tell him what we want because <laughs> that would be against the spirit of the group.
that record, both of those records, are layers of improvisations. They're not songs. So you will have one improvised line, and then you know, send it to Cody. Cody responds. Joe responds. I respond. They're all responses to an initial improvisation. Um, so we can't say, well, Joe, you know, on this bridge right here, <laughs> we want you to play this. We don't have bridges. So um, it took a while because we had to help Joe along the path to, to find out what, what he wanted to contribute without telling him what to do um, was, was tough and really fun at the same time. Um, it's... it's it's the first time I've ever been in a group where we were really locked in and then we just brought in a third member. Hmm. Uh, it's an interesting creative challenge. Um, yeah. Well, it, it seems to me that um, location or, or I don't know if it's geography or space or something, uh, but this idea of place sort of permeates uh, a lot of your music, the, the stuff that I've listened to. And, um, you know, I wonder if that concept of being tied to a place, being influenced by a place, you were talking about living in rural Minnesota or living in where you live now, uh, and it could be in relationship to this project that we're talking about now, but how do you feel that uh, place plays a part or influences your creative uh, output? It's a, it's, a big, it's a big part of it. You know, it's, it's place first before it's geography or population or anything like that um you know place as a big umbrella for all these other factors and i think even on cody's website he has an artistic artist statement that has to do with that um it's a it's an influence in minnesota the influence to make angular music or country music just flowed I mean, it was like a river of ideas all the time. And when I moved to Hudson, New York, and Hudson is also beautiful in a different way. We're right at the base of the Catskill Mountains, right on the Hudson River. But I live in town. I have like a sidewalk mm. <laughs> in front of my house, which is weird. <laughs> uh, it's, so you have to look some other places. It's yeah. not like in Minnesota, I could walk out my front door, I'm on a dirt road, I can walk 100 yards to my canoe and launched into the, the creek. I don't have that now. So I have to find other, what other things are there? What else is it that's going to do that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, country music is an ode to those experiences. You know, it's not an ode to the genre of country music. Right. <laughs> we, we all like that, I think. But um, it's an ode to making music about your place. We didn't make a record about Hudson or about Colorado. We made a record influenced by what it is to be in a place and, and really be absorbing.
Yeah, really beautiful, beautiful record. Um, Thank you. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about another collaboration that you've done recently with uh, Seth Chrisman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the project that intrigued me was one called Olive Bridge. Yeah. And so Seth Chrisman, he's another good example of the internet bringing people together because he collaborated with Cody over the internet in a group called Squash. And I run a small label called Fet Press, and I put out one of those releases. And as luck would have it, within a year of that, both Seth and I had moved here to the Hudson Valley, having never met in person before. Um, so the internet brought people together again. Wow. So this Olive Bridge, I was reading about it, that I understand that it was the product of a trip uh, that the two of you went on to uh, some a cabin in upstate New York or something like that? Yeah, so we, we had been, he moved here and, and we spent a year not making any music. We, we just hung out and listened to records and went hiking. Didn't, didn't play any music together and we decided we thought we should give that a shot. So we rented a cabin over in Olive Bridge, New York, which is not far from here. It's near Woodstock, um, near the Ashokan Reservoir. Rented a cabin in that way, kind of a cliche <laughs> Let's rent a cabin in the woods and make a record <laughs> idea. Um, but it, well, you know, there was some intention behind it because the Ashokan Reservoir is a beautiful place, uh, especially for field recording, which is something that Seth is really immersed in. Um, so the Ashokan Reservoir is full of eagles and all sorts of wildlife. And... Um, so that we chose it for that, and its proximity to the Catskills, of course. Hmm. Uh, so we we went, and the interesting thing about that is that uh, we had a lot of equipment in a very tiny cabin, and had not been able to find or didn't remember the cable for our recording interface. So we had beautiful microphones and preamps, and had to record it live to two track to a. Uh, Morant solid state recorder. Mm. <laughs> so the, the album it actually worked out really well because it has a live feel. There's no overdubs or, or post-production on that. That's a live to two track, you know, recording the room pretty much with some very nice Shopes microphones. Mm. Um, and those recordings are literally the first things that Seth and I ever did together. They're just improvisations. Uh, the very you know side A is the very first notes we ever played together. Beautiful. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about this interest in in tape and tape delay and reel to reel tape machines. One of the things that I I mentioned even in the intro was that um, and it's been described. I've read uh, about different people online talking about your work and and you yourself um, talking about using these reel to reel tape machines and that thinking of the tape machine as it's as an instrument in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an album you made called the 3440, which you note as an homage to the TEAC, or I guess Teak 3440 reel-to-reel tape machine. Yeah. So I'd be curious to know how you first uh, started experimenting with tape machines and how you discovered that, that it could, in fact, be uh, an instrument in its own right. <laughs> I think that a lot of experimental musicians are long familiar with 
you know, the Frippertronics setup and all the different kind of tape delay things, experiments, you know, they did in the 70s. It happened for me that a friend of mine bought a 3440 with a matching mixer and he was, he wanted to do kind of acoustic music and I just set it up for him, you know, plugged the cables into the right places at his house and then <laughs> let it go. And like a year later, he decided, ah, this isn't for me. I bet Nathan would like this. So he just brought it to my house and, and said I could have it. Oh, wow. Uh, which was great. Um, so that night, I thought, well, you know, I can record already with a, at high quality with a computer. I'm going to, I'm going to try looping. Uh, because the, the 3440 is a unique unit because it's a four track with uh, variable speed, meaning I can change the speed while the deck is playing. And that's an incredibly uncommon concept with a lot of these machines. Uh, probably because the designers were like, why the heck would someone want to change the speed while the machine's playing? Uh, I sure do. And uh, so that very night, I set up a mic stand. I made some tape loops. Um, and discovered that that was really a great way of working. I mean, you have a, a four-track looping machine. You can cut your own loops. Um, you can do all these different effects. You know, you can saturate the tape to distort it. You could do a tremolo effect. Um, there's just so many kind of tactile effects to what you can do uh, that it just it really opened up a world of music for me that within you know, a year of him dropping that off, I had recorded that echolocation series. It's a six tape series because it was just a universe of sound that I had not encountered on effects pedals or, or anything else. I mean, you could kind of simulate some of these things with Max or with Ableton, but it's just, it's really not the same. It's not the same because it doesn't have that organic um, analog sort of feel, right? I mean, that's that's really the the would that be the draw to working with tape is that you get to work with your hands and and physically manipulate and work with an object. Yeah, I think that you know, for one, if I'm going to go perform live, people would much rather see me manipulate a tape machine than a laptop. Um, and two, you know, analog is in its nature infinite and, and digital is finite, right? So the, the amount of manipulation I could do or just the nuance to uh, manipulating or saturating tape is, is infinite. Um, and I, I knew right away that, okay, it's great. We could like treat audio with a tape, right? And that's tape hiss or crackle or any of those sorts of things. You know, how could we elevate that a little bit more so that it is not just novel? Um, and that's where looping comes into play. Different methods of looping yeah. came into play for me um, in a big way. Because I think that a lot of my music that is very loop-based, you actually, it's not immediately apparent that's on a reel-to-reel -reel because I try to get around the idea of tape hiss or, or crackle yeah. you know, a lot of those sounds. So if you had to say, um, if, if people are listening and, and they want to go uh, listen to a good example of, of this kind of create, creation, what uh, album or what track would you point them towards to give a good example of this? 
There's a, I mean, there's the split I did with Josh Mason called 3440. Um, that's the is, one I, that's the one I mentioned up the, yeah. the top of the section. Yeah. Okay. So that was, re- that was released on tape drift. Um, you can buy the digital, I think from Josh or I, and that's, you know, he's on one side, I'm on the other. And those are two really different takes on how to use that deck. The other one is also a split and it's, it's me and Joe Hooper when under his prayer moniker and the tape is called Dawn Chorus. Um, and now it's some really intricate looping um, on that tape. These are just really extreme examples of what you can do. You could pick up any of my releases and you're going to hear tape looping. You might not know it. Hmm. Uh, but those two tapes are really homages to what can be done with tape looping. Part of what led me to you and in our conversation even today is this fantastic subculture that I've discovered online that is kind of a, for lack of a better word, boutique record labels. These uh, record labels that are very, very highly curated uh, and they turn out these, you know, just beautifully pressed and rendered records and, and even cassette tapes with you know, the, the art, uh, the liner notes, the art is, I mean, in, in essence, these things are visual art pieces, sculptures almost, if you will, just in mm-hmm. themselves. But there's this beautiful uh, subculture of these kind of boutique labels. Uh, I, I mentioned Alien Records, this, uh, you you have your own record, small uh, batch record label, the Round Bale that put out uh, one of your records. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder how you got into this um, sort of idea of pressing your own or having vinyl pressed or, you know, making cassette tapes, this sort of subculture. How did you get involved with that? And can you talk about that? Sure. Um, It's wonderful how much effort all these folks putting in, you know, to put out these tapes and records. Uh, It's flattering that people do that. (laughs) And I think the level at which they're doing it is, is impressive. The Elian records is just the amount of effort he puts into that is magnificent. Um, and I stumbled on it, um, just via trying to remember, uh, probably reading reviews of music at what a website that used to be around called Foxy Digitalis. Uh, that website's not around anymore. It merged into decoder secret decoder. Um, you know, these underground music sites, cause that's what a lot of us were using to find music. Um, so when I had done the echolocation series, uh, my friend Joe Hubert said, man, you should really send that to Digitalis or any of these labels. And what I did was I sent it to gift tapes and, and he liked that. And he, he sent it to Digitalis for me to Brad Rose, who also liked it, which via those two guys, they just opened up that community to me is very welcoming community to find of people that really cared about the music they're putting out huh. and, we're, and we're putting out an incredibly diverse you know set of music at the same time 
for me, I, I think I was fortunate to be welcomed into it, uh, into the community like that, and, and to have those opportunities. Uh, yeah, I'm just e- eternally grateful. Yeah. So, so it was a thing where you just reached out to them and sent a file of some of your stuff and, and made the connection in that way. Yeah, I sent a demo, you know, like the good old days, and uh, they liked it. So hmm. it's good. And then, you know, after a couple of those tapes came out, uh, you know, the LP, uh, the Refrigerator's Emotional, Giuseppe Ellisai reached out to me. You know, so slowly some of the labels started reaching out to me to ask ask me to do work, which is also wonderful. So, so you didn't actually like print some of these records yourself. You you always went yeah. through a, a label. That's right. I don't think I've the only things I've ever self released were lathe records um, through my own imprint I run with Joe called Fet Press. And those lathe records are meant to be companion pieces to some of the cassettes and records. Hmm. Um, but otherwise, no, all of these releases, you know, other people put them out. I sent in demos or they, they solicited, you know, a piece of work from me. Wow. I, I've looked into it a little bit myself because um, I, I have some, I'm starting to have a collection of pieces of my own that I'd like to release at some point. And, uh, but I, I've been looking into, you know, um, because there's different uh, places online where you could have your record, if you send the master in, you know, you could have it pressed to vinyl and you could get, whatever, 200 or 500 pressings or something. And uh, so mm-hmm. I was just wondering mm-hmm. how people are doing that, if they're doing it themselves or going through these labels. So it's, it's good to know. And you mentioned a couple of labels. Are there any other labels that you think are really interesting that are putting out these sort of boutique vinyl cassette releases? I think the notice recordings... Uh, does some incredible work. They put out um, cassettes and they are letter pressed. The artwork is letter pressed. Um, so they're just, they're simple and, and really beautifully put together. They put out uh, one of my first uh, tapes also from a demo. Um, I sent them a digital demo <laughs> and they said, well, we, we work in the physical medium, so you should mail something. So I, I mailed them a demo like it was 1990 or something. Um, <laughs> but they, they do really nice work, I think, as well. And, and I think Scissor Tail Records, based out of Oklahoma, he does cassette CDs and vinyl now. Um, but I think he documents a really dusty corner <laughs> of kind of experimental folk music, which is a corner I like to hang around. Hmm. Uh, he put out uh, uh, the he reissued the soundtrack for the Hired Hand by Bruce Langhorn. Um, that's kind of that label's claim to fame, I think. Um, but he does great work. Wow, I'll check it out. I, I'm not familiar with that, so I will definitely check into it. So, how much input do you have to like some of the artwork on on some of these things? Do you supply a lot of the ideas, or do they sort of just? Um, like what, what's the process of working with the label on, on that end of the, the project? You know, every label is different, uh, when it comes to that. Some of them have give you total creative control. Some of them really like to control that. Sometimes it's a collaboration. So it's, it's the spectrum, honestly. Um, you know, the refrigerator is emotional. I did that artwork. Um, just Seppi did the layout on the back. 
the Ilian record was totally done by Matthias. I didn't do any of that artwork. Um, so it's it's open um, in some places, and and I think that I've been pretty open about it. Um, you know, in terms of letting labels kind of have a hand in that. It really depends on the release to me. You know, there are some releases like the Tilth material that I feel we really need to have control over that down to who screen prints them because the Tilth records are screen printed by hand Mm. uh, by a Minneapolis-based artist named Casey Deming. Um, So, you know, it really runs the gamut. Uh, well, you mentioned this album, The Refrigerator is Emotional. It's got quite an evocative title and uh, really interesting cover art as well. And you have a, a number of records also that are clear vinyl um, with just really interesting art on the, the sticker uh, or on the cover. But uh, let's talk a little bit about The Refrigerator is Emotional since you sent me. That was one of the albums that you so kindly uh, shared with me. And uh, so I've listened to some of that now. It's uh, fascinating. A lot of um, field recording or just uh, sort of hand recording in this in this one. Uh, you want to talk a bit about this album? Sure. That was a lot of room mics. So there's no field recording okay. on that record. Uh, but it sounds like there are. And the idea, I just moved to Minnesota at the time and I... I was living in a uh, intentional community, uh, living and working with with uh, adults with developmental disabilities, and uh, that, that album is about that experience, uh, the early days especially of that experience. Uh, it's it's intense, but it's also beautiful. Um, it's inspiring. It's also exhausting. <laughs> um, and there was a particular incident that happened in the house early on where someone stole food. Well, they didn't really steal it. It was in the refrigerator. They could eat it if they want. And they were very upset because they had stolen it and they felt guilty that they had stolen it. And they didn't need to feel guilty. You know, they're adults. <laughs> and and I'll never forget the exchange that we had, me and this, this person that, that took the food, uh, because they were so upset. And, and, had such a sense of guilt over something that's so normal, a normal activity, you know, to go take food when you're hungry, right? That was the, the source of the title. A lot of people think, oh, you built an album around like field recordings of the refrigerator. Because refrigerators <laughs> are, are noisy. Right. Um, there are no recordings or refrigerators <laughs> on there at all. It had to do with the, the, these concepts of living together, protecting each other from ourselves, <laughs> and, and just supporting each other, which is really at the crux of the work that that my wife and I have been involved in for, for a long time. Hmm. That's really yeah. beautiful. That's really beautiful. The uh, So so I'm curious to know then if, it, if it's, for instance, uh, some of the titles of the tracks, The Basement is Open, The Road is Dark, The Table is Company. So you're sort of giving these um, these places in a, in a house or in a, in a 
a place, sort of these personalities or feelings or something like that. So were, was each track, for instance, the, the car is quiet. Was that recorded in a car or was that just a feeling of being in the car? Or how, how, I mean, how do the titles relate to it what's was, happening? Each one of those titles really ties directly to an event. And there's no recordings of those events uh, except for the basement is open. But there, you know, you'd, uh, something would happen that day. And every day something was happening. <laughs> And it would leave an impression. A lot of these things would leave such strong impressions. Um, because at the time, living with a person who could be pretty emotional and another person who had a lot of physical need, um, they just those, those experiences leave a lot of, of memory to them. So I would go and, and make music, and you can't deny that those that music was inspired by those events you know yeah. so the basement was open at the time i had my base uh, studio in the basement which was a walk-through basement so we, we had people coming in off the farm that would walk through there <laughs> well and sometimes i think oh, i have like an hour to do this but i was wrong and they you know people come walking on through so you hear there's people talking and it's because the room mic was live and it's just catching it. And a lot of it was the person who this album's title, you know, is dedicated to. Hmm. Uh, because she, she talked a lot. <laughs> Had a lot to say. Well, it's really, really fabulous. And I uh, hope people can find uh, this music and find all of your stuff. I should want to give a plug for your uh, website. People can find your information online, NathanMcLaughlin.info. And uh, I'll certainly make sure and put links in the show notes to uh, as much as I can. You have so you've been so prolific as a recording artist <laughs> that uh, uh, you know I'll try to put as much as I can um, on the website whenever I post the show. But uh, we're getting close to time here, so uh, I'd like to wrap up our conversation. And I always close these uh, conversations by asking a very simple question that, that might have a, a very long and complicated answer, so I want to make sure uh, that you have time to respond. The question is, how does one live and sustain a creative life? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, relationships with people are very important to me. They're more important than making a lot of money or living a, a lavish lifestyle. <laughs> And I turn to those uh, to find inspiration to make music more than I would anywhere else, more than I would turn to Bill Dixon's records or, you know, uh, whatever. I really turn and, and lean on those relationships and those experiences we have together with my friends or my children, my wife. Um, and that... <clears throat> is where those ideas come from. And, and if people see that I haven't made a record in a while, it's probably because I'm out having a lot of these experiences and, and storing them up uh, or, or finding the ones that, that will do something. I'll just give a quick example. There's this album on Alien Records called Nothing to be Sad About. And what happened was my cousin, who I grew up together with him, he's, we're the same age, he got was getting married and asked me to play the music for his wedding. So I wrote these acoustic pieces for his wedding, acoustic guitar, and I, I played them. And I, I liked what I had done and thought I would make a record out of them. And Joe Hooper had come up 
to play some music, and he said, he's, he said something to me. I don't know. I guess I was complaining about something. And he said, what, what do you have to complain about? You have nothing to be sad about. <laughs> so it's this combination of Joe kind of putting me in my place. I shouldn't complain so much. <laughs> and also tying in what he said to a marriage, my cousin's marriage or just marriage in general, that there's nothing to be sad about when, when two people find themselves like that. Uh, that's just an example, you know, of all these different experiences, human experiences, you know, that that inspire the making of a record. Yeah. You know, more than more than anything else. Yeah. Beautiful, Nathan. Well, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm really looking forward to diving into even more of your music. As I mentioned before, it's you've been so prolific with making albums, and uh, there's a lot to a lot to digest there. So thank you, and yeah. keep keep them coming, and and I hope to hear more from you in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.